Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am so happy to welcome Anna Malika Tubbs. She is an author, sociologist, educator, and advocate. Her book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation, which was published in 2021, is a New York Times bestseller and was named one of the best books of 2021 by Amazon and NPR. Anna brings an impressive academic background to her groundbreaking new work on motherhood. After graduating from Stanford University with a bachelor's in anthropology, she earned her master's in multidisciplinary gender studies and her PhD in sociology from the University of Cambridge as a Gates Cambridge scholar. And on top of all of that, from 2017 to 2021, while her husband, Michael Tubbs, served as the mayor of Stockton, California, she served as the first partner of Stockton, where she co-authored the first ever report on the status of women in Stockton to help guide policy decisions with the experiences of diverse women in mind. Anna and Michael have a son, Malachi, who is two and a half years old, and a daughter, Nehemiah, who is seven months. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Anna. Thank you for having me. What a sweet introduction. <laughs> of course. No. Well, when I initially read about you and your book, I immediately reached out to our mutual friend, Stanford professor, Michelle Elam, shout out to Michelle, with the yes. hope that she would put us in touch. Thankfully, she knew you well, and she put us together. So you're here. Thank you so much. And I'm excited to talk with you about motherhood, a subject near and dear to us both. So let's get started. Let's do it. Yay. So I often start my conversations with the saying that I say a lot with respect to parents, and I say, parent the child you have, not the one you were or the one you wished for. And so your focus has been on the critical importance of mothers in their role of shaping their children. So let's talk about how you were raised. Who was the child that you were? Oh, the child I was, my goodness. <laughs> so I was the youngest. <laughs> no, actually, I don't think I was that bad. <laughs> I was the youngest of three. Um, I still am. And I have an older sister who's 10 years older than me and a brother who's three and a half years older than me. And mm -hmm. two parents who are very different from each other were very different from each other. My dad was a political refugee from Ghana, actually. And he went to Sweden when he left Ghana originally. Um, and my mom was already a law professor there. She I was born and raised in Clarkston, Washington, and Ooh. she kind of had this dream of becoming a lawyer where all these people told her that she shouldn't, that she should just become a mom, a wife and a mom. And even though her dad was a judge, he didn't really want to support her career in becoming a lawyer. So <laughs> I was very much influenced by both my parents' drive to be more and to, you know, challenge those who told them they couldn't do what they wanted to do, not only for themselves, but for the world. And then also having two siblings who were great at everything, both my sister and my brother <laughs> are very talented, high achievers. And it didn't really make me feel intimidated because all of the members of my family were constantly telling me that I could do whatever I wanted to do, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that I should be aware that other people were going to try to limit me or challenge me and that I shouldn't be afraid of that. So that was the kind of kid that I was. I was always very curious, always really pushing. Um, everyone called me kind of like the pusher. <laughs> the <family>. <laughs> Meaning <laughs> the, the motivator or the, the one who would not stop um, until she got her way? <laughs> you know how your strengths can sometimes be your weaknesses. <laughs> that's definitely, that's been the case for me my whole life. Uh, my mom also said I was born 
three weeks early. And so she was like, we kind of knew from the beginning you were deciding how the schedule was going to be and that everyone better be ready when you're ready. Um, and if not, everyone's going to have to scramble to make it work for Anna. So I think all of these things are true. I'm definitely like the youngest and all of those kind of stereotypes that come with being the youngest. But I really really took, I don't know what the, what the word is. It was amazing to be the youngest in this incredible family um, mm -hmm. who poured all their energy into me. And mm -hmm. I am always thankful for that. So that's a summary, I think. <laughs> no, it's a great one. And, and as the youngest of three, I can definitely relate. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so I know that you were born in Albuquerque in, in yeah. New Mexico, in the United States, but your family not only was very high achieving, but was very adventurous in that you grew up kind of all over the place. Can, can you tell me sort of the different places you went to and, and what it was like adjusting to all these different places? Definitely. Um, my parents both really prioritized travel and mm -hmm. exposure to different parts of the world for their children, um, as well as for themselves. It was really important to them that we have a global mindset, that we see things firsthand, that we not just kind of believe what was in the media, but that we also have our own account of different places. And so they were both trained as lawyers, but they kind of decided that no matter what job popped up, if they could do that work, um, even if it wasn't necessarily being a lawyer, if it meant being a professor or a consultant or a teacher or whatever, um, that they would take that job if we hadn't lived there. So we moved from, so before I was born, they had traveled a lot, but let's start from when I was born. <laughs> um, I was born in Albuquerque, like you said. I was only there for two years, though, before my family traveled to Dubai. Mm. We were there for four years, and then we were in Estonia for one year. Then we were in Sweden for several months, almost a full year. Then we were in Mexico for four years. Then we were in Azerbaijan. After Azerbaijan, we moved back to the States and we were in what I always say is the most exotic place of all, Laramie, Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> Loved it there. It was very different. And then after Laramie, I went to boarding school in Indiana because my parents wanted to start their work abroad again. And my mom mm -hmm was really interested in working in crisis areas. She'd always been passionate about advocating for women's rights and children's rights, and especially in these crisis zones. So she spent time in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in um, Kuwait, not so much of a crisis zone, but different places, South Sudan, uh, writing the rule of law there with a different team. So wow. it just traveled, 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 a lot of travel. And then after I graduated from high school, I went to undergrad um, in California and then met my husband. So then I went back and forth actually getting my graduate degrees in England, but also being in California where he was elected in Stockton. Wow. Wow. So much there. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> now, so now we're in LA. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, so as I listen to the various amazing travels and, and I'm from a family who like to travel and my kids and husband and I travel a lot, especially when they were younger, but you traveled throughout the course of the year. So you had different schools. You were in, when I'm, I was just thinking, wow, how does a family with three kids sort of educate them all along the way. But right. I, I read that you were put into local schools wherever you were. Now, how was that in terms of clearly it didn't impede your intellectual capability? <laughs> it it <laughs> might have. <laughs> no, but how does that work in terms of the regular displacement? I mean, was that an issue at all? 
Hmm. It, you know, so for the most part, we were in local schools, but depending on different places, my parents made some different decisions. So I think they always kind of wanted whatever they felt was going to be best and most fruitful for us. So in Dubai, we actually went to one of like the American schools in Dubai. Mm-hmm. We then in Estonia had tutors um, at home with us because my mom was actually really concerned about racism in mm. Estonia. And I, I definitely felt that there more than mm. anywhere else. But this was several years ago, of course. So. Mm-hmm. If anyone's from Estonia, I'm sure things have changed a lot. <laughs> it's all um, good now. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. And then when we were in Mexico, for instance, we were in a local school. So it was all Spanish speaking. Um, and I did not at first speak a word of Spanish. Wow. I should also say that my sister was an incredible ballerina. So she was often in boarding school and would come and meet up with us wherever we were for, you know, holidays, et cetera. So she danced for the Royal Ballet in England. So she wasn't <laughs> going to the same schools as we all, as my brother and I were. So that was kind of like my brother and I as a team joining all of these new places. So mm-hmm. in terms of the effect that it had on both of us, um, Of course, it could be really difficult at times. You know, children really just want to fit in. Um, They want their friends. They want to feel secure there. Um, And when you're constantly being moved, it's a little hard sometimes to feel settled. But on the other hand, it made me an incredibly confident person. I've been the new kid so many times. Mm -hmm. I've had to walk into rooms where everybody knows each other and I'm the only person that no one knows. And sometimes I don't even speak the language. And I have to find a way to connect with people. And I've always been aware of the need to build community around me. No matter how long I was going to be there or how short it was going to be, Mm-hmm. I wanted to have my friends and my connections. And I've always been a very social person. So I also think it was really positive for us. My mm-hmm. brother and I both are the kind of people who across any difference can connect with people or um, find something to relate to them with or just ask questions. Even if we don't have something in common with that person, just thinking about how you have conversation and really get to know a person um, and Mm -hmm. celebrate the differences that they bring to the table. So yes, there were times where we felt a bit displaced, (laughs) a bit unsettled, a bit upset with our parents that they were yet again going to put us in a situation (laughs) that um, was difficult for a young person. Um, And now that I have children, I mean, they're very young, like you said, two and a half and now eight months actually with my daughter. Yeah. It's just been a month since we were introduced. (laughs) (laughs) But I am already realizing, wow, that was even harder than I really realized before as a child. Doing that Mm -hmm. to my own children seems kind of crazy. Um, (laughs) But I'm grateful for it. And it's definitely something I carry with me. It's it's touched every part of my life and personality and being in the goods and the bads. I love that I can walk into any room on my own and feel Mm -hmm. confident that I'm meant to be there and that Mm -hmm. there are people to connect with. But then I also have a notion often of I need to be settled. I need to have my things be settled. (laughs) (laughs) So Anna, that was an amazingly wonderful description of the positives of that. And so for any parent out there who is concerned about uprooting their child or if your children (laughs) are pushing back, replay this because I really, I loved I can easily, everyone can imagine how difficult it could be or disruptive, but that was just a really good explanation that should help parents breathe a sigh of relief that even though at the moment it may not seem like the absolute best thing, that it has great benefits down the line. Absolutely. And I'd also say though that my parents were very good at checking in with us. So even though Mm -hmm. they were like, you're going to do it, you're going to go to the school. And we were (laughs) like, no. And sometimes they only told us we were moving, you know, a couple of days before, like they were just, I don't don't know what it was, (laughs) but they were like, hey guys, we're moving next week. And we were 
what? You know, what about our friends? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, but then at the same time, they would check in with us and say, you know, things like your friends will still be here. You know, this is mm-hmm. this world is, is big, but it's also small and you will mm-hmm. be able to see them again. And now you're also <laughs> going to meet new people and just a perspective. You know, I think we had a very mature perspective on how life works. Mm-hmm. And, you know, children often feel like, you know, you take them from each other for a day and they're like, oh, this is awful. You know, it's the end. And instead we understood that okay, there's a lot more to see. There's more people to me. And that doesn't mean I'm letting go, but they checked in with us constantly. My mom was very big on feelings and how does this feel to you and name that feeling, just always checking in, sometimes annoyingly. So, you know, we were kind of like, (laughs) ah, we're fine. So I I do think that's important to just have that check in and not just kind of force Mm -hmm. your children Um, I mean, maybe sometimes you have to, but to just make sure they also know that their feelings are valid, even if those feelings Mm -hmm. don't change the situation. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a key combination of letting your children know that however they feel, unfortunately, it's not going to be able, their feelings not going to rule (laughs) because that's a good boundary to establish, but that you care about them enough. I mean, you want to make sure they're comfortable. So yeah. I also love the concept that this has made you feel confident walking into any room. And um, you've written about something that I talk about a lot, and that is the importance of knowing history, knowing one's own mm-hmm. history, particularly for African-Americans, knowing our complicated but inspirational history to give us a sense that we belong everywhere and, and that we should walk proudly in the paths that our ancestors have played. So You've talked about how your parents have educated you and your siblings on African-American history and African history, I mean, based upon your your lineage. Yeah. How did they do this? I mean, how, how did they, how was it incorporated into your life? Yeah, this is important um, for sure. I should also mention my mom was a white woman, so she mm-hmm. really took on this badge of allyship and what it means for her to raise black children. Mm-hmm. So she did her own Um, research. She did her own reading. She was very clear that she was never going to tell us what it meant to be a Black person, Mm -hmm, but that mm -hmm. she was going to walk alongside us and do her part in learning and making sure that this world was worthy of her children, really, and doing her work Mm. to to change things that might have made us feel that we were less than we were. And so that was really her stance was, I need to do my part. I need to be educated. I need to be aware of even current events that are going to affect my children. I took that not for granted, but when I was younger, I just didn't really fully understand how great of an ally she was and how many other people struggle with that. So I often use her as an example of how you can think about allyship and learning about mm-hmm. having Black children, even if you yourself um, are not Black. But my Mm -hmm. dad, his role in this, I would say, was he's very big on history and Mm -hmm. especially oral history. So in Ghana and West Africa, and I would say probably the African continent, but I I haven't traveled all over the African continent, um, that oral history is really critical because so often our records have been destroyed or others have tried to keep us from knowing our past um, Mm -hmm. or there's been obviously all of these invasions and colonization. Mm -hmm. And so oral history is a practice that's really critical. So my dad is one of the chiefs of our tribe in Ghana. We're part of the Achim people. And he, every family has a family historian. So um, he is not necessarily our family historian, but the practice still comes into how he always raised us. So there was 
multiple moments where, you know, we would just kind of be having a day and then my dad would be like, here's a story you need to know. <laughs> um, and would kind of, we'd all be like, oh, okay, dad's like telling a story. And, um, and both my parents were very good storytellers, but my dad would tell me about, you know, the queen mothers of Ghanaian tribes. And for instance, Ya Santiwa, who I speak about in the book, a female warrior, a queen mother, um, who is famous for saying that if the men were not going to fight against colonization in the way that they, she needed them to, that the women were going to rise and do it, and that they did, and that they were holding off European forces for several months until they finally capture her. Um, but this was a story that my dad wanted me to know well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there were stories all the time from both my parents. There was a lot of research. There was a lot of sitting down every day, actually. They would sit and watch the news <laughs> together. Mm -hmm. And if we wanted to be in the room, we were going to watch the news. It wasn't going to be let's change the channel. And they would have conversations with us about what was going on in the world. And then they would also tell us about something that led to that moment. So mm. in our family, there was so much world history that they were constantly talking about. Mm -hmm. It was also a discussion between the two of them and how they felt about a certain whatever news headline was was going on based off mm -hmm. of their experiences. And of course, as I mentioned, they were both trained as lawyers. And so mm -hmm. the conversation was always very... You can bring evidence to your argument. You know, there's all these things that now, I mean, obviously as a kid, I didn't fully get what was going on for what they were educating me, how they were educating me. But I mm -hmm. now see the impact of seeing two parents who were so well-informed, who wanted to show us how you can become well-informed, not only through watching the news, but also seeing things yourself firsthand, watching different news channels, mm -hmm. discussing it with each other in front of their children, sometimes disagreeing on something and bringing evidence to the table of, well, this is from my experience or, you know, such and such book. And sometimes they would pull out books and say, well, look what it says here, you know. And so that's what we were kind of accustomed to. And so growing up, we always knew, you know, you, you could have an opinion that was different than somebody else's. You should have media literacy. And if you're going to come to the table and be part of the discussion, you have to be ready as well. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been, it was very funny um, to have family vacations once we were all older. And, you know, my sister's also a lawyer. My brother has three degrees. I have three degrees. So wait, the, the sister who was the ballerina is now a lawyer? Yes, my sister. Okay. Yes. Well, now she actually has chosen to be a stay-at-home mom with her three beautiful children and soon mm -hmm. to be a fourth child. So we honestly, through so much of our experience, it's that our parents always told us, you can choose what you want to mm -hmm. do and when mm -hmm. you want to do it. Um, and you can have degrees or you can be at home. Like there were all of these things as much as it was our choice mm -hmm. that we kept doors open and had the opportunities. But yes, she passed the New York and New Jersey bars in one go. That's my, that my sister. I told you they were, they were <laughs> siblings are good at everything. Yeah. So I'm just trying to be cool enough to be their younger <laughs> sister. But all of this came as a result of these family conversations, mm -hmm, 100%. Mm -hmm. So you've said so much, but the two things that really resonate <laughs> with me, wouldn't it be cool if every family had a family historian? I mean, often, I mean, I had a cousin who unfortunately passed away, but he was our family historian sort of by choice. But it would be great for families to designate someone whose job it is, is to keep the family stories alive. And I mean, because my cousin found so many interesting facts about members of our family who we never heard of. No. It takes someone's focus to do that, though. Somebody's mm. got to do that. It just doesn't 
doesn't happen. Um, well, and keeping the record as well. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking on my husband's side of the family, obviously my family as well, but just to distinguish it right here, my aunt on his side, she also keeps record of everything. So if we're ever in a, like a newspaper or any article online, she's always like, you guys, I need to keep that. Because Mike and I are sort of like, okay, where well, there's a link, whatever, I did the thing. Right. And she's like, <laughs> print out the piece of paper, you know, like, or I want the newspaper article. I'm making the scrapbook. I'm going to give this to your children. <laughs> you know, and you're sort of you sometimes don't really realize how important that is in terms of that current living history and how that's going to be a document that someone in the future would love to see and read. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. So I want to shift um, topics just a little bit um, because I want to talk about your book. I, I, I have, um, I, I, I was thrilled to hear about it. I'm, I've, really excited about what the work that you've done. And I know it's grown out of a lot of research. So it gives us your book. I'm just going to let listeners know in case they haven't read it yet, that it gives (laughs) us the heretofore untold life stories of three women, Alberta King, Martin Luther King's mom, Bertus Baldwin, who is James Baldwin's mom, and Louise Little, who is Malcolm X's mom. Can you talk a little about why you chose these women and and what their stories symbolize, especially for Black mothers, but for mothers everywhere? Yeah, absolutely. I when I started this project, I'm going to tell this is going to be a long answer. I mean, listeners no, are no. like she she gives long answers. <laughs> I love long answers. <laughs> My general idea was I wanted to be someone who found other hidden figures like Margot Lee Shetterly did in her mm-hmm. incredible book that went on to become the movie. And then I also wanted to honor mothers because my mom always spoke about like I said before, advocating for women and children around the world, but very specifically how powerful and influential the role of motherhood was. And so mm-hmm. this was a huge landscape of hidden figures, Black women and mothers who have intentionally been erased from our history. Unfortunately, there were so many options to choose from. And I had to think, how am I going to narrow this down? I also wanted to have the largest audience possible for this book because I wanted as many people as possible to know three black women's stories that they might not have known previously. So I was very Mm -hmm. strategic about that as I was narrowing it down. I thought about the civil rights movement because we come back to it in our discussions all the time. You know, we have Mm -hmm. now several days where we're remembering figures in our history and we're thinking about how our world aligns with the vision of our civil rights heroes. Um, But we speak about it from such a male perspective. And so I kept thinking, okay, if I put out both my, my dissertation and my book were both about these three women. But if I write this work and I do this research, how cool would it be if it's something that contributes to our shared understanding of the civil rights movement? Um, if my mm-hmm. book shows up on these lists alongside these other ones, how incredible could that be if I'm bringing um, this Black motherhood perspective to that conversation that's happening all the time and will happen for several years? Uh, but then I thought, okay, I mean, at the risk of it kind of making it seem that I think men were the only leaders of the civil rights movement. I definitely do not believe that. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to play with the patriarchy on purpose Mm -hmm. because I think more people will come to this work if the names MLK Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin are on the cover. So I thought, all right, let me look into their moms. Um, I'd also recently watched I Am Not Your Negro, uh, the film that was based off of Baldwin's writings. And in the writing, he talks about how Malcolm – Medgar and Martin, his friends, mm-hmm. are you know obviously doing all of this incredible work and risking their lives and how he's lost them. But I thought, okay, that would be interesting. Maybe something between the four of them and their moms. I'm going to look into it a little bit more. And then I discovered that Alberta 
Burtis and Louise, and I call them by their first names because this is the name they had, you know, from the beginning of life to the end of life rather mm-hmm. than by their married names, et cetera. So it's not out of disrespect. It's that I want to really honor that identity mm-hmm. for them as young girls as well as as women and mothers. But they were all born within six years of each other and their famous sons were all born within five years of each other. So then I could bring together these three completely different stories and celebrate that difference and not present black womanhood as if it's one kind of monolithic experience, but instead rich and vast with difference and diversity and that strength of difference. I could bring them together in time and not reduce their different identities, but bring them together through chronology. So the chapters progress through 10 years of their lives. Um, I didn't force it to fit into that timeline. It's mm-hmm. actually happening that way um, in, in history. So it's very cool to see kind of why I introduce different women in different orders. It's because of what's happening in their lives. I introduce it in order. <laughs> <laughs> So these fascinating stories, first, I have to say that such a really smart and good way to get to the points that you want to make, because as soon as I heard the premise, I mean, it's sort of the most amazing one sentence premise, you know, who are the mothers of these three great leaders? It's sort of like an aha moment. It's like, never thought of that. Who are their mothers? I mean, and isn't that a really important question to ask? So I applaud you on really getting to the core of it in in, it's so, so um, impressively. But I know that, and I've heard you talk about this, that the story is not just about these three women. It's sort of about Black motherhood and motherhood in general, and how shining a light on these women, sort of to talk more about the erasure of women and Black women, particularly these contributions generally for our society. And can you talk a little bit about how you see this erasure and, and, and what you think we should be doing to center motherhood more? Yeah, sorry, you did ask me that in that first question, and <laughs> you got, oh no, no, got me back on track. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. Yes, for motherhood more generally, and then I'm going to speak very specifically about Black motherhood. Mm-hmm. Mothers are viewed in such strange ways in our nation, and the stories that we're telling about motherhood are very reductive of the role of motherhood and the critical and essential nature of mothers Mm -hmm. and and what they're doing for our entire society. So just as some examples that we tell stay-at-home moms that they're being unproductive in some way Mm -hmm. or that we don't applaud them for what they're doing, not only for their families, again, but for their society or even the money that they're making and saving for their families, we don't even quantify and we don't support them. Mothers who decide they want to work outside of the home um, or who are trying to work outside of the home, they're often viewed as if they're distracted or women feel that they have to hide their pregnancies because someone might not hire them. Or you have, you know, just the the list goes on and on of all the stories that are incorrect around motherhood and that I believe lead to a lack of support for mothers. Mm -hmm. So we Mm -hmm. don't have affordable childcare that's universal in the US. We don't have universal parental leave. And I think all of that comes as a result of a misunderstanding of how important this role is. Something that in other countries, I actually think they, not all other countries, but many other countries um, see very differently. You know, you Mm -hmm. might have up Mm -hmm. to two years of paid leave that when we're thinking about, especially from a sociologist perspective, that the society, the first society is the family. And in order for our larger society to do well, these first societies have to do well. They have to be supported. Our children have to feel like their parents are okay. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. without that, 
all of these other things start to erode our larger society. So generally, this is what the book is saying is, you know, we need to pay more attention to the role. Um, And not only that these women birthed these incredible men, um, of course, we need to pay attention to that as well, like the conditions under which they were uh, they had to do that. Um, were they supported as black women going into whether a hospital or with Louise and Alberta, they um, did home births and how that applies to our current conversations around the maternal health crisis. But also that mothers are our first teachers and our first caretakers and our first leaders, that they are mm-hmm again, influential, their role has ripple effects. And so the more we support that, the more our country can do better um, on so Mm -hmm. many other indicators. So generally with motherhood, the book is making a claim on that. (laughs) (laughs) When we come specifically to black motherhood, Mm -hmm. in the US and in American history, black women are the only ones who by law have been deemed the givers of property through our children. So when Black people say today we are being treated as if we are less than human, and a lot of people are saying, oh, that's an exaggeration, or that's not really happening, or it can't be really that bad. When you look at Black motherhood in the U.S., it is undeniable that we have been dehumanized. So (laughs) if by law it's been stated that our children – are somebody else's property, that they're not human beings and they're certainly not our children, that they're somebody else's property, you cannot deny dehumanization. And when a country is built on that, like a country's economy was built on this notion that our we were not human and our descendants were not human, of course, there's going to be remnants of that in our system to this day. And so Black mothers and black women have never accepted that as reality. We know we are human beings. We know our children are the most precious human beings. And so instead of accepting that, we've had to envision a world beyond what was readily available to us and push this country closer to that vision where we can all be treated with the dignity and the respect that every human being deserves. Um, And this is why you go through American history and see black women and black mothers constantly pushing, constantly, even if the country's telling us they're not ready for those changes, Mm -hmm. black women's inability to accept things as they are, and the need to keep pushing with optimism, as well as with anger, as well as with pain, as well as with joy um, towards what's possible for ourselves and for our descendants. So that's why this book is a celebration the very specifically of Black motherhood and the erasure of the role of Black mothers uh, and really calling attention to how strategic it is that we not know these stories. And what Mm. changes in our minds when we actually do know the stories is we realize mothers are powerful. We realize that their identity before they become mothers is just as important as their identities when they become mothers. We realize that they are not only taking care of us and cooking meals, and while that is also really important, they are also influencing us in our passions, in our careers, in what we're going to be able to do for the whole entire world. So there's a lot. Mm-hmm. The book is trying to accomplish a lot. Mm-hmm. No, and it does. It, it's it's brilliant, brilliant. Thank you. I'm wondering what you think about, you know, the complicated role of mother, not only how the world sees it, but actually how we as women and we as black women see it for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, you hold in one hand this kind of idealized view. I can't, I, I lost count of the number of people who tell me when I tell them that I've spent the bulk of my adult life um, 
principally taking care of my children. And, and it's taken a while for me to even say it that way. Mm. <laughs> but the response is, oh, it's the most important job in the world. And, you know, you do get a lot of lip service on sort of how it's a good thing. Right. But no one talks about, and and which you have actually, but no one generally talks about the skill sets that are needed, the planning, right. the organization, the strategic analysis, the execution, empathy, leadership, all of the qualities that one has to have in order to give your children the best opportunity. And even within the community of women, these skills are not universally focused on or valued, particularly when you have a lot of opportunities to do things to intellectual pursuits that are far more interesting and exciting than, quite frankly, the day-to-day care of, of children. Right. So one of the things that I, I focus on, and I'd be curious about your thoughts on this, is is um we definitely have to push for more recognition of the importance of roles as mothers and for opportunities like uh, universal uh, health care and, and preschool and affordable health care to enable us to not be burdened so by all of it and not to full the weight of it. But don't we also have to focus on the, the, on improving the actual skill sets of mothering? I mean, mm. in the sense that I feel as if we sometimes approach mothering as something as women that we are bound to mess up, fail at, or it's a challenge that we were wringing our hands about. I mean, it's it's a um, as opposed to starting a new job where you feel like you're prepared to some extent and that you're smart enough to do whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I find generally the approach to motherhood is sort of like, "Ooh, I hope I don't screw this up," mm. which is not <laughs> which is not a place of confidence. No. How do we, as a community of women, help each other, build each other up in our in since we have to have these skill sets, we are charged with these skill sets. We want yeah. to have them. How do we build each other up to develop them along the way? Mm, there's a lot that I have to say about that. <laughs> We're going to see where I go with the answer. Um, I would say first and foremost, it's really important that mothers be aware and everyone be aware. I also think like mother discussions are not only for mothers to be having, so mm-hmm. everyone needs to be a t- pay attention to this, mm-hmm. that it's very strategic that we – feel like we don't know what we're doing or that this role isn't something that is, you know, that requires a lot of skill. That's all very strategic. So a lot of times Mm -hmm. people think I'm speaking just from the perspective of being a mother. um, And I think that is the most important expertise in this case. But on top of it, I also wrote a dissertation on motherhood (laughs) as well as a book on motherhood. Um, So I know this well from the perspective of laws that were written to, to push mothers away um, or to suppress mothers or um, this general attitude that's been written and built into um, many of our systems. So it's not that mothers are imagining this feeling of, oh, I'm, I'm afraid, let's say, even of labor. Or I'm afraid of mm-hmm. what it means to take my child home or I feel very tired and I feel very unsupported and I feel unseen and I feel disrespected even even when people are giving me that you give you that lip service of like no it's the most important role you also still have the sense that they're like oh okay you know <laughs> yeah. and that all is strategic so it's not anything that anyone is imagining but instead was um, comes as a result of again the disrespect of the the role and the power of motherhood and womanhood more generally and when you start to see it that way even from when we're little girls and we are experiencing our monthly cycle, that people tell us we have to hide that, that no one should know. Um, so there's always this this need to control the visibility of the power of womanhood um, from the moment 
you know, mm-hmm. even when we're little girls, this notion of, um, and there's a lot of theories around this, so I don't want to go on a whole spiel, but um, one of the books that I think is really important <laughs> for people to read is Of Woman Born by Adrienne Rich. It was one of the first mm-hmm. books that talked about mm-hmm. the the sociology of motherhood, basically. And it's very, it's like from a very white perspective because she was a white woman. This is an early, early book. But just thinking about how <laughs> she argues that a lot of the ills of our society have come from men realizing that everybody is of woman born and that this power mm. is something that they feel they either have to control or run away from as men who do not have that same power. So then you start to see all these rules come into place or making women hide that they're breastfeeding, for instance. Um, all of these things are very strategic. So that confidence as a mother, when you know the strategy to take that confidence from you, um, or even going back through the American gynecological history of telling women, actually, you know, we as male doctors are going to take control of the birthing process because you don't know what Mm -hmm. you're doing. All of that then grows and stems into us as mothers and being seen as people who don't know what they're Mm -hmm. doing so that we feel like we don't know what we're doing instead of the emphasis on, again, the power, the skill that we have and can learn and grow in um, by speaking to other Mm -hmm. women, Mm -hmm. other mothers, elders who, who came before us. All of that robbing of that from us was very intentional. So we have to reclaim that as much as possible. That's a long way of getting mm-hmm. there, um, telling that history. But we have to know mm-hmm. that it's being used against us. So any moment where we feel, oh, here's another example. Somebody says, oh, you have mom brain. And I'm like, excuse me, mom brain is an excellent brain. And I, I often say, yes, actually, right now I'm experiencing some mom brain because that means to me my body is telling me I need to focus on something that the kids need to survive or, oh, no, did I remember to give that, you know, give or pump milk for my daughter? Did I remember that my son had? So that is an excellent brain because you're trying to help another being outside of your body now to still survive. Um, but when people often speak about it, it's as if we are dumb mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that we suddenly can't think for ourselves anymore. And even that is an example of a strategy of other people trying to rob our power from us. So at every mm-hmm. turn, we need to be aware someone is doing it on purpose or it's coming as a result on purpose to rob our power. We have to reclaim that power build that confidence. Um, But it's also not our fault. And we're not imagining being unsupported. We are unsupported. So the more we can say, (laughs) yeah, our country is not supporting us. And I say it often, our mothers in our country deserve more than our country is currently giving them. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, before we have the policy to support this role, before we have everybody understanding, again, the essential and critical nature of it, uh, in the meantime, for ourselves, we have to be aware of that strategy reclaim the confidence, reclaim the strength, make informed decisions, and don't just trust something that a man decided long ago was how things needed to be done, because that is not coming from the perspective of respecting the power of motherhood. Oh, that was a long answer. I hope people follow it. (laughs) No, it was a great answer. And yes, everyone could easily follow that. And I would just quickly add that you are so on point with the need to 
combat, be motivated by this this um, intentional uh, efforts to keep us down to do your homework, do the work, do the research. You can be prepared and, and celebrate the way that you think. But before we wrap up, I just have to ask you one of the obvious questions. You started this journey, this deep dive into motherhood well before you had children. And <laughs> now you have a two and a half year old and an eight month old. So how much did your work in this area influence your perception of motherhood and how close has reality been to your perception? <laughs> oh, that's so great. Um, it's yeah, because I was writing the book when I was expecting my son, um, my firstborn, and then I was on the book tour when I was expecting my second. <laughs> but also that I was doing all this research on all of these strategies that I've talked about kind of vaguely here, but I promise they all exist. And actually, my next book is about mapping it very clearly, all of these laws and systems. It's a kind of inextricable, my identity as a mother from the research. I approach my motherhood with such confidence mm -hmm. and a constant sense of you are not going to belittle me. You are not going to say anything that is disrespectful of my role. Um, and that, you know, goes sometimes mm -hmm. for my own husband, who is wonderful, but sometimes needs some reminders on how the patriarchy <laughs> <laughs> is affecting him. Mm -hmm. um, but also for audiences or, you know, friends or family, I'm constantly reclaiming my, my need for like when I say what I need as a mother, that people mm -hmm. respect that. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, it's quite funny because I feel like everyone around me now is like so afraid to mess up because <laughs> I'll write some kind of article about it. And I'm like, oh, well, this thing happened, you know, it's gonna be a time magazine. And <laughs> <laughs> and these are ways in which we can do things differently, everybody. So it, it's as much as possible. I feel so confident. I also knew as a black woman having a child in the United States that there were going to be all of these biases that I was going to have to confront, that it could be very dangerous for me. This was not mm -hmm. just a joke. It was not just for me to talk about. I could lose my life um, mm -hmm. and that many black women are and that we are sometimes up to four times more likely to lose our lives in pregnancy or in childbirth because of the biases that we're facing. Or again, mm -hmm, I'm mm -hmm. talking about this robbing the power of motherhood. It's even worse for black mothers. And mm -hmm. people have tried to control our ability to have children or our choice to whether or not to have children from the beginning of slavery. So I was aware of that, meaning I also needed to have doulas with me and women of color with me in my and when I gave birth the first time at a hospital. And then I had a home birth when an incredible mm. black midwife with my daughter, I knew of the power again and of the choice. And that's not to say at all that any way of giving birth I think is incredible and women have done an incredible thing. Um, but we also need to be feeling like we made that choice. So mm -hmm. many of my friends walk out of their experiences um, in labor and delivery feeling like someone just told them what to do the whole time. And my doulas and my midwife told me, you are the leader of this show. You're going to mm. tell us what to do. Um, even though this is your <laughs> first time, you, we're going to listen to your cues. And mm -hmm. it was this shift in my mind again of like, I'd been told my whole life that this wasn't what, that I should be afraid or that mm -hmm. somebody mm -hmm. else was going to tell me versus, okay, now that I've studied this, now that I understand this, now that I've like sought the resources that I need, um, I actually have a lot more power. But I worry that this is unfortunately because I also had the privilege of being mm. able to afford doulas, mm -hmm, being able mm -hmm. to afford a midwife. And those are the things that I realized with the privileges that I was given, these are things that every woman should have access to. First and foremost, women should have the choice as to whether or not they're going to have children or become mothers. And then if they choose to become mothers, they should be 
feeling well-informed on their options. They should know the history behind things like a C-section. Um, they should know that the hospital will walk away with more money if you have the epidural. There's all of these other factors that are coming mm -hmm. into play. And once you know that and you make your informed decision, then you can approach that motherhood with that confidence. So that's really what I'm all about. Mm -hmm. And it came as a result of my research. I would not have been this kind of mother without being so aware of the history. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. And I can say that I too was a very confident mother. I still am. And it was born of a lot of research, a lot of an interest in learning before and during child raising. I would just want to say for people listening, this confidence, it doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean you know what to do at every turn. It doesn't mean that every day in mothering, um, you're just sort of walking proudly through the world knowing what to do. <laughs> but it means that when you encounter something that presents a problem or it's an issue, that you, have to, you, you feel confident in your ability to figure out an answer, an answer that works for you and your family. So I, I heartily, heartily, um, I, I believe that confident parenting is is sort of the only way to go. And I really wish for people, one of the reasons I do this podcast, I really wish for people to have that confidence. And and thanks to you and your book, women and, and men, but women in particular, will be able to sort of draw, it's another great resource for them to draw on to find it. So, yeah. And can I also add that that confidence also comes with grace? You know, confident parenting mm -hmm. means you're also graceful with yourself and your children. <laughs> you're like, okay, ooh, messed that one up a little bit. Or, you know, like I had a reaction that maybe I shouldn't have had. But then you're also aware of, okay, I am a human being. Um, I have grace for myself. And it's not that, um, yeah, like you said, confidence means I'm perfect and that I get it right every single time. But it means that I don't blame myself. Um, there are so many mothers who feel such intense guilt all the time, you know, and we feel that like, if we mess up, if something goes wrong for our children, that we're going to be blamed for it. But then if something goes right, we're very rarely thanked for it. So Absolutely. it's <laughs> that balance. And can I suggest you've talked all along about the strategy of it. We don't just blame ourselves. Everyone else. Society blames us. Men blame us. Everyone else blames us. It's not, even if we don't want to, if we, because I, I firmly believe that I, I, I don't harbor guilt because you do the best that you can. You get as, as informed as you can and you do the best you can. But it's amazing how mothers get guilt. People like to um, apply guilt to mothers. So those of you listening, Put your shields up because even if you feel good, there is an effort to make to make you feel like some of the some of the consequences of parenting are your fault. But right. so, Anna, I I so appreciate your time. I could go on for for much longer, but I'm going to wrap it up here and say first, thank you so much. Thank you. I, I, it is as great a conversation as I knew it would be, and <laughs> um, and I'm sure I'm not the only one listening who feels that way. So one quick thing before you go, and that is I need you to very quickly play the GCP lightning round. I have four oh, very fun. quick questions. <laughs> okay. So I'm the first... so bad at lightning rounds, but I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be great. So your the first question is, your favorite poem or saying? We must define ourselves for ourselves, Audre Lorde, and everything that comes after that, but... I won't go into it. <laughs> great, great. <laughs> okay, your favorite two children's books, and these can be books that you grew up with or books that you read to your children or both. <laughs> Ooh, The Change We Sing. It's a new one, Amanda Gorman's children's book. I absolutely love it. And The Undefeated by Kadir Nelson. Ah, great. Okay, so a mom moment that you would just love to do over. Oh, 
Oh, <laughs> <laughs> there's so many. I would say the the very first time you hold your baby outside of your body. It's just, mm-hmm. gosh. I love the way you interpreted that question because it's everyone else, myself included, have interpreted that as a moment that you would do differently if you could do it again. Oh. <laughs> but That's I love, so no, you don't, don't, don't answer it that way. I love that you, it's, it's so in keeping that you, you answered it as one that you would do again because it was so good. Oh, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so That's funny. great. Yeah. I okay. can think of some other ones too, if you want. No, no but finally, this is, so this is a sort of now then a, a second version of that question, but, but answer it differently. A moment when you knew you nailed it as a mom. Mm, mm. Gosh, I honestly, I feel like there are a lot. Um, I would say, I really feel like I nailed it. So when my daughter was born, um, and again, my children are so close in age that Mm -hmm. um, I was really nervous about my son feeling, you know, replaced or whatever. And I had this really clear conversation with my husband that, you know, this is your time to really shine with our toddler (laughs) and like, do not let him, you know, cry in bed because he should be old enough to sleep through the night. You need to go and be with him. And so I feel like it's a moment we nailed as a team um, Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. we did not say, you know, just when you're older, you're the big one or whatever. Like, you know, we're taking care of the baby. It was this sense of, he will have his needs met just as much as she does. Um, And as a team, we're going to come together and really kind of being the leader of that team myself and saying, this is the role we are all going to play to make sure everybody in this family still feels that they are seen and important and not alone. Um, And I just think we did that really well. And I think our kiddos (laughs) get along well as a result. Again, they're very young. So I'm sure all of you are like, just wait. (laughs) No, no, no. My, I've got three and they're in their twenties and they, they all still get along really well. It's it's possible. The arc can okay. continue. So you've given them a really good start. Speak that into existence. <laughs> yes, I have just done that. <laughs> okay. Well, great. You finished the lightning round. That was great. Great answers. Thank and so you. thank you so much for, for joining me and, and for your book. And congratulations and can't wait to read the next one. Thank you. <laughs> I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.